years ago. And to help us start doing that, I want to start with a question. Something you need to think about in your head, give your own answer to. If I ask you the question, what do you think is the biggest problem in the world? Or we could slightly reformulate the question, if you could change one thing in the world, you could make one big change, what would it be? What would you do? You might say, well, the big problem in the world is a lack of education. You might say, if we had better education kind of across the board, a lot of our problems would actually be sorted out. You might think, actually, a lot of our problems stem from inequalities and from oppression. Maybe you think that political systems and economic systems are all a bit mixed up and actually they're where all our problems come from. And all of those, I think, are legitimate answers in different ways. But I think there's a far bigger problem that faces us as humanity. A thing we all know is a problem, actually, ultimately, for all of us, the biggest problem in the world for us as humans is the problem of death. Death affects all of us. Wherever we are, whenever we live, all of us are affected by death. The deaths of those we know and love around us, our own death when the time comes. And there's something about it, we, we see it as this huge problem. We know it's not quite right. It's the, the big enemy, as it were, of humanity. But you see, the reason we celebrate Easter is Easter offers the one true hope of a defeat of death. It offers the one true solution to the great problem that we as humanity face. And it's a solution rooted in time and history, a solution that has changed reality. Where hope comes into the most hopeless of situations, where light comes into the darkest darkness, where life comes into death. You see, I think this problem with death, we all, I think, as humans, recognize that it is a problem. At the very least, we all recognize that death is a universal problem. It's kind of the great lever, isn't it? The one thing that connects every single one of us in this room, every single human who's ever lived, is the fact that we will die. Rich and poor, young and old, male and female, educated, uneducated, death comes to us all. And I think the vast majority of people agree that death is unnatural. It's something we feel shouldn't be there. It shouldn't be like that. Or certainly, it's something we don't like. You feel that most keenly if you go to a funeral. At a funeral, no one really is there thinking, well, this is okay, this is how things should be, this is, yeah, this is right. We have this sense of something's gone wrong. The world shouldn't be like this. this. This stuff shouldn't happen. Even if the person who's died was quite old or had been quite unwell, we still carry the sense of it, it feels like this shouldn't be. It feels like it shouldn't work out like this. And actually, we can extend the idea a bit further because people die, but kind of non-material things die too. Our hopes our dreams, our aspirations, our intentions, our desires, sometimes they die too. And frankly, life can just be full of problems and difficulties and pains a lot of the time. We're living a whole world kind of characterized by death. It's one of the great problems we face. We find we hate death, but we love life and we long for life. And you see this also in the fact that we as humanity have always sought to conquer death. We sought to kind of undo it and get past it. One way to do that is to focus on a life that comes after death. And it's really interesting that even people who have kind of no religious belief, who maybe don't really believe in a God, don't believe there's much beyond the material world, when death hits, often actually they too are seeking to conquer life by thinking about life after death. Even the most secular people who have no belief in a God or anything else when death hits, we'll often begin to want to talk about something after death. I'd look online at um, some kind of suggested words for secular funerals and non-religious funerals, and here was one of the suggestions. Into the freedom of the wind and the sunshine, we let you go. Into the dance of the stars and the planets, we let you go. Into the wind's breath and hands of the star maker, we let you go. We want you to be happy. Go safely, go dancing, go running home. We're clearly not comfortable with death because when death hits, we've got to try and find a solution to overcome it. 
Sometimes we do that by thinking about life after death, but actually increasingly people are doing it by trying to stop death. There's a new movement called transhumanism that's emerged over the last few years, which is basically trying to stop us from ever dying. So rather than dealing with a bit after death, it says, well, we'll just never die in the first place. We'll conquer the problem of death on this side. It's a quest for immortality. So in 2013, Google launched a company called Calico, the Californian life company. And they've said this on their website. Calico is a research and development company whose mission is to harness advanced technologies to increase our understanding of the biology that controls lifespan. Basically, we're here to use technology to extend lifespan, to mean you can live forever. They want to overcome the limitations of our biology to trans beyond it so we can live forever. And they're very secretive about what they're doing, but what we do know is they've got a colony of 30 naked mole rats, which are these rather unattractive-looking little creatures, and they're tracking them for these 30 years, and they're basically trying to work out why aging happens and how they can stop it. They want us to be able to live forever. Or another similar company, or the founder of a company called United Therapeutics, was quoted recently as saying, clearly, it's possible through technology to make death optional. People are trying to stop us from ever actually dying. All of this shows... We don't like death. We know deep inside something's not right. It's not meant to be this way. It's not meant to be like this. We hate death, but we love life. What we long for is life. But you see, the problem with those examples I've given, with the kind of secular, vague, spiritual existence after death and the transhumanism, we're going to conquer death, is they're based on nothing but hope and wishful thinking. What evidence is there? for a non-religious person that when they die, they go to some lovely existence in the stars or the sky or the space, they go dance and they go running home. It sounds great, but what's the evidence? And transhumanism, where's the evidence that we're going to stop death happening? Where's the evidence we're going to do it? So far, we've managed to reduce people's pain in death, and life expectancy has increased, but lifespan has not. So more of us live longer than previous generations did, but none of us live longer than anyone has ever lived before we don't seem to actually be able to stop death happening, to draw lifespan out. These are great ideas, but they're just wishful thinking. We want them to work because we want to have that life, but actually wanting doesn't change reality. Wanting alone can't do it. But there is one exception. The one exception, the one thing that truly conquers death is the truth that we remember on Easter, that Jesus is alive. You see, the resurrection of Jesus, the coming back to life of Jesus on the very first Easter Sunday offers a promise of life. But this is not an offer based on wishful thinking of hopefully it will work out, hopefully it will happen. This is an offer of life based on an event that took place in time and space, in history, in the world you and I are living. An event which has fundamentally changed reality. This is an event which changed everything. This is an offer which actually can conquer death. In the Bible, one of the places we read about this is where the Apostle Paul, so one of the early church leaders, writes to a church in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. And in chapter 15, near the end of this letter, he's talking to them about Jesus' resurrection, the fact he rose from the dead, and about the fact that because he conquered death, we too can become death conquerors. Let's just read a few verses of what he says, uh, starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ 
will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Just before this, Paul's been talking about how important it is that Jesus really was raised from the dead. He basically says if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then this whole Christianity thing is completely pointless. We might as well go home. There's nothing to it. He says no point if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. But verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul is deeply, deeply confident of this. He is utterly certain of this. And we might hear that and we might think, yeah, well, you know, poor Paul. He was kind of it's a, bit, a bit naive, maybe a bit deluded. Maybe people tricked him into believing this, this great story they'd made up. It was wishful thinking, like transhumanism or like this kind of vague spiritual existence that some secular people might believe in. But actually, it's not. Paul knew this wasn't just wishful thinking. It wasn't just a nice story. It wasn't just hoping Paul knew this was based on history. He knew this was a historical event. And you know, the reality is, all the evidence in history points to the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Paul's talked about some of it himself. In verse 6, he talks about the fact there were lots of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus after he'd been risen from the dead. He says after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. The really important thing here is that we've seen by a whole bunch of people. Now, it's possible for an individual to have like a hallucination, you know, to imagine they see someone. It's not possible for 500 people at the same moment to hallucinate and see the same thing. Actually, it's not possible for two people to do that. There's no other explanation other than they actually saw the risen Jesus. And Paul is so confident that this happened, so confident it's true, he's like, most of those 500, they're still alive. You can go ask them. You can go check them. Don't believe me. Go ask them themselves. He knows that this is true. But then also, it's just a historical fact that on Easter Sunday morning, the tomb of Jesus was empty. It is the only plausible explanation to the evidence we have. It must be true, if the tomb wasn't empty, when the disciples claimed that it was, then the authorities, who really didn't like Jesus, hence the fact they'd killed him, and really didn't like his followers, hence the fact they would kill most of them in the decades to come, would have gone to the tomb, would have got the body, and would have proved Jesus isn't alive, his dead body is right here. It's utterly implausible, historically, to suggest that the tomb wasn't empty on Easter Sunday morning. That is a, as firm a historical fact, really, as we can ever know. So we might say, well, that must be because the disciples stole the body. Obviously, they wanted to trick people to believe in this to happen, so they just took the body away themselves. But then we've got to ask questions like, well, why would they do that? What's the benefit to them of pretending that Jesus has risen from the dead, taking off the body and convincing people it is? And particularly, what's the benefit of doing that? And then, as pretty much every one of them did, dying in painful, excruciating ways, they became martyrs for the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. People die for things they're believing all the time. People don't die for stories they know they have made up. Why would they do that? And if the disciples stole the body, why don't the authorities, who didn't like them, go and find the body? Why is there no record of them even trying to find the body? I think it's because they knew it wasn't there. They knew Jesus had risen from the dead. So the other thing is, you might say, well, maybe he just didn't die. The tomb's empty, yeah, that's because he didn't die, and he got out on Easter Sunday morning. But really, again, it's hard to say it's plausible. The common sense questions are, well, really, how would he get out? Even if he hadn't died on the cross, he would have been severely physically weakened. How did he then get out of a tomb which had a huge, whacking great stone in front of it, blocking the entrance? And really, it's implausible to suggest he didn't actually die on the cross. The crucifixion would have been done by Roman executioners, very used to doing their job, very thorough. 
There's no chance they would have allowed a guy who hadn't died to go and be put in the tomb. And you know, many people have set out to disprove the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, to try and show that it's all a story, it's all fabricated, it's all made up. Sometimes they're being lawyers, people trained to look at evidence, trained to look at arguments. Sometimes they're being academics who likewise do all of that. And actually many of those who set out to disprove it have found that all the evidence points to the fact that it is true. It's a fact. In time and space, in history that we're living, Jesus rose from the dead. And so Paul the Apostle here, he is utterly confident that Christ has been raised from the dead, and we can have the same confidence. All the evidence points to that conclusion. And then Paul begins to explain to us why that's such good news, why that completely changes the reality that we're living. He says Jesus rose from the dead, and he's the first of a great harvest of all who have died. He's saying this is about more than just Jesus. It's not just this happened back then, and that's interesting. He's the first of something bigger, the, the start of something greater. He's using a term here, Paul, of the first fruits, which is a term from kind of farming and harvesting. It's the idea that when the first bit of the crop comes in, the harvest comes in from the crop, you know that the rest of it is just around the corner. You get a flavor of what the crop's going to be like, and you get this guarantee that now is the time the crop's going to start coming and we're ready for the harvest. He's saying because Jesus has risen from the dead, there's been the resurrection, the defeat of death there. There'll be many more resurrections to come, many more people being raised from the dead there. And he continues to explain. He explains in the next verse, in verse 21, that death came into the world through one man. It came into the world through Adam, the first man. The guy you read about right at the start of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, where God plants a beautiful garden, puts there Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve, that they fail to trust God. God says, here's the way to fullness of life. And they say, actually, we like the look of this, and we're going to find fullness of life over here. They don't trust him. They rebel against him. And as punishment for that, death comes into the world. The world gets broken. He says, death came through one man. But then he says, the resurrection, the opposite of death, the undoing of death, comes also through one man, through another man. He's saying that as we all die because of Adam, so actually all of us can have life because of Jesus. Death has been conquered by Jesus, and so we can become death conquerors. He explains, just as everyone dies because we're all in Adam. And what Paul's meaning here, what he's thinking is that when God looks at us, he, he sees us as somehow linked to Adam, somehow in that group, because actually every one of us has done what Adam did. Every one of us rebels against God. Every one of us does what the Bible calls sin. We, we don't go God's way. God says, here's the way to the best life, the fullness of life. And we say, no, we like this stuff down here. We're going to play with this instead. We all rebel. We all sin. We all reject God. And that's why we all die. Death is not natural. Death is universal because sin is universal. Death is experienced by us corporately as humanity because we corporately as humanity have rebelled against God and rejected him. It's not actually meant to be part of the natural kind of way things are. It's punishment, the Bible says, for rebelling against God. But, Paul says, there's a way to be released from that punishment. There's a way to escape the judgment, the condemnation, the punishment we actually deserve. Because just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. This happens to Adam's group, but this happens to Christ's group. Belonging to Christ, there is life, there is victory, there is a way to become a death defeater. You see, in his death on Good Friday, there was more going on than just Jesus dying. As Jesus dying, he was going through more than just a physical death. He was taking upon himself all of God's anger, all of God's punishment, 
against all of the times that you and I have rebelled against him, have failed to love him, have failed to trust him. He became our substitute. He became our sacrifice. He took the punishment that should be ours. And in his resurrection, he then shows that he'd done that. And he finished the job and he triumphed over sin. He triumphed over death. He had once and for all defeated the great problem that faces us as humanity so that we could know life. But he knows that even as he says that, there are people in Corinth reading this letter thinking, yeah, but Paul, my mate who was a Christian, has died. The resurrection didn't work for him. That's why he explains actually there's an order to this. There, there's a way this works. He says Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. And then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Jesus is coming back. After he rose from the dead, after 40 days, he ascended to be with God the Father. He's now in heaven with God the Father, but there's a day when he comes back. There's a day when he comes to fix all the things that are broken, to wipe away every tear, to put to rights all that has gone wrong. And Paul tells us that when he does that, anyone who is in Jesus' group, who's in Christ, will be raised from the dead. He was the first, and then we will be the many who come afterwards. We too will experience resurrection. And so Easter, the resurrection, the truth that Jesus is alive, is the the one true certain answer to our great distaste for death. Our hate for death, but our our loving life is right, is natural. The Bible tells us that's how it should be, and that Jesus, what he did in dying and raising back to life, he is the one who's won a victory so that we can conquer that great enemy. The resurrection of Jesus gives this offer of a promise of lasting life. And not only offers it, it guarantees it. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not, wouldn't it be nice if this was it? It was something's happened that has changed reality. And now this historical fact uh, changes everything, makes that available. And this life, Paul says, it's available to those who belong to Christ. He's saying we have to do something, we have to respond to experience this. It's like God is saying, here's a gift I'm giving to you, but unless you stretch out your hand and take that gift, you're never going to get it, you're never going to enjoy it, you're never going to live in it. Today God's doing that. He's extending the offer of true life in Jesus. But we, to experience it, have to reach out, we have to respond to it. So that might deal with our problem of the great enemy of death that we as humanity face, but we also said that death kind of is broader than that. We know that life is full of difficulties. We have the death of our hopes and our dreams and our intentions. There's difficulties. There's disappointments. What does Jesus say about those? How does Easter help us with those? Well, maybe actually in a surprising way. If you read the Bible, you'll find that Jesus never promises that if you become a follower of him, life will get easier and he'll fix all your problems. He never says that life following him is the route to an easy life. But the Bible says it might not be the route to an easy life, following Jesus, but it is the route to fullness of life. It is the route to the very best life that you can ever experience. You see, the good news of what God has done in Jesus, the the good news of what's happened because Jesus has been raised from the dead, is not just a way to cheat death, but it is a way to find real life. You can live all the days you have on this earth, all your life, without Jesus. You can count like that, but it will be life, but it won't be true life. It won't be real life. It won't be the best life that you could enjoy, that you could live. You see, the true life, the best life, can only be enjoyed in relationship with God because that is what we're made for. And that's the true gift of Jesus. The true gift, the true wonder of what God wants to give us is not that we get to live forever. That's great. But the reason that living forever is really great 
It's because it's living with God. The reason that the new creation will be resurrected and new bodies will be amazing is not just because it's life, it's because it's life with God. And Jesus knew this. On the night that he's betrayed, so on kind of Monday, Thursday evening, when um, uh, the, uh, he's just with his disciples, he's just praying to God, this long prayer in John 17. And he says this, speaking to God the Father, he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He's saying real life, fullness of life, eternal life, the best life, is rooted in knowing God. That, that's what it's really, really about. It's relationship with God that makes life uh, the fullness of what it can be. Uh, we might ask, well, why is that? Why does it kind of work that way? How is it that it's like that? And actually, it makes sense it's like that because actually relationship with God is what we're made for. And it totally makes sense that you're going to find fullness of life and the greatest satisfaction and fulfillment by living in line with how you're created to live, how you're designed to live. I think the best illustration of this in recent years is Toy Story 3. So in Toy Story 3, the toys are, are kind of sitting around. Their owner, Andy, has grown up, and they're in cupboards and on shelves, and they haven't been played with for years. And they start the film feeling kind of utterly unfulfilled and empty and miserable and sad. Life lost all meaning and purpose because they're toys, and they're created to be played with, and they're created to bring joy to children who get to play with them. And as the story goes on, they end up in like a daycare center for kids. And there's suddenly no end of a stream of kids who every day come and want to play with them. They get to bring joy to all of these children, and they find their purpose again. They kind of come back to life. They find fullness of life. They find the best life. They find satisfaction in living how they're meant to live because true life comes from fulfilling your purpose. True life comes from living in line with how you were designed to live. And the Bible tells us that you and I as humans... We're designed to live, created to live in relationship with God. That actually the way we find fullness of life, the great purpose of our life, actually the Bible says, is to make God look really good by really enjoying life with him. Actually the more we enjoy life with him, the better he looks. And that is his ultimate purpose. That's why we've been created. That's why we exist. And so fullness of life isn't just a life that goes on and on. It isn't just the continuation of existence but it's living in a relationship with God. One guy who's written about this verse here, he says, eternal life is not so much everlasting life as personal knowledge of the everlasting one. The good thing about it is not that it goes on and on, is that you know the one who for all eternity has gone on and on, for all eternity has existed. The resurrection of Jesus the truth remembering today, what happened on that first Easter Sunday, means that you and I can be restored to that relationship that we're designed to enjoy. We're created to enjoy the place we find fullness of life. Jesus has paid the price for the things that separated us from God. He's paid the price. He's paid off our full debt. So if we come to him, we get forgiven. We get welcomed in. We get drawn into that life. This is the true invitation of Jesus. Yes, there's an invitation, come, receive the guarantee of resurrection of eternal life, but much, much more than that, there's the invitation of come, receive real life. Come receive fullness of life now and beyond into the resurrection. And Jesus has already done the work. He's already won the victory. That's why today it's been a day of celebration because Jesus has finished it. He's done it. He's done what is needed, and now it's there for any one of us to step into to take hold of, and to enjoy. I'm going to invite the band to begin heading back up at this point, please.
And so we had to make the choice if we want to know this, to enjoy this, to step into it, to receive it, to take hold of it. That's what Paul said, is about being in that group in Christ. Or the Bible often talks about this response as being about repenting and believing. To repent means to kind of recognize, to realize that we've tried to find true life and fullness of life, the best life, in created things. In things that aren't God, we've tried to make our own way of finding the best life. And actually we've ignored and rejected and turned away from the fact that God knows what's best for us and it's life with him which will be the very best thing. And so to repent means to recognize I've been walking the wrong way, going the wrong things. And I'm going to turn 180 degrees and instead walk towards God and trusting his ways. As the repenting and then the believing is as we've turned, we're walking and we walk trusting that he'll forgive us. Trusting that when he died on the cross, all our sins were paid for. All that stuff was dealt with. The price was paid. We get set free. And so he will welcome us. He will accept us. And we will get to walk with him in fullness of life. And the moment that we believe all our sins are taken away, Paul read that thing from Romans 5, we're justified. God says, you know, no condemnation for you. We're placed in grace. He delights over us. He accepts us. He embraces us. Friends, that's the invitation that God extends to every single one of us today. An invitation not based on wishful thinking, but rooted in historical facts, what's happened in time and space, in the reality you and I know. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, let me encourage you, use today as an opportunity to reflect on what Jesus has done on the life he offers you. To reflect on the fact that the wonderful thing Jesus has done for you is not just guarantee your eternal uh, position with him, but guarantee that right today you get to enjoy fullness of life with him. The right today, your every need, your every desire can be met in him. That he loves you and delights over you. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, friend, this offer, this invitation is being extended willingly by God to you today. You can come and make that choice to repent and to believe. You can leave here knowing that for all eternity, you have a perfect relationship with God. The great enemy of death, physical and death, non-material, has been defeated. You can enjoy life with God. If that's you today, don't leave here. Let me encourage you without kind of exploring more, finding out more. There's various ways you can do that. There'll be some people out in the Connect area, which is just in Coffee Box, and turn right there. We'll be more than happy to chat with you, answer any questions. There's some little booklets there called Why Jesus that just tell us a little bit more um, about it so that you kind of find out more in your own time. Come and talk to us. If you came with a friend, you might want to just talk to them. They can tell you a bit more. Or if you just look for someone who's got a badge on, they better direct you to someone who can tell you more and can help you to understand more. Don't miss the opportunity to find out more about Jesus and to respond to him. We're going to spend some more time now worshipping, uh, celebrating what God has done for us. And even as we do this, let me encourage you, whatever's in your heart, if you're expressing it to God in response to what we've said. Maybe you want to stand as we begin to engage with God, we get ready, the band are going to lead us, but let me just pray before we do that. Father God, we acknowledge that we hate death, but we love life. And we know that is because you have made us for life and you have made us for life with you. And we thank you that today we can celebrate the fact that you have come and you have defeated sin. You have defeated death. Thank you that Jesus on the cross, you took all our sin upon yourself. You became our substitute, became our sacrifice. You made the way for us to be completely forgiven and cleansed and free. And that then you rose to life in glorious victory, defeating death so we can become death defeaters. Today, God, we say we want to take hold of that. We want to celebrate that, and we want to know and experience and enjoy the fullness of life that you have for us. We say thank you so much for it. 
And we say, help us to revel in it, to enjoy it. And as we enjoy you, Lord, would you be glorified, would you be praised, would you be worshipped, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.